Movement has always been, for me, the primary way that A, I protect my mental health, and B, that I connect with others. That quote by author and movement enthusiast, Dr. Kelly McGonigal, PhD, and it's part of a conversation you're about to hear between herself and Kevin Rose of The Kevin Rose Show. Keep listening as Kelly shares her own slight twist on our old friends' exercise and movement, how they play into our biology as social beings, what it means by changing your brain to change your body, and why certain molecules excreted through strength training are sometimes referred to as hope molecules. It's Tracy. Thanks for being here. And welcome to another replay of the day on this episode of Invisible You, a podcast for women over 40 living courageously. Bat wings, turkey neck, jiggly thighs, thunder thighs, love handles, muffin top, and my personal favorite, the latest, the greatest, the hip dip. Yes, folks, this recent addition to these ever-growing terms of endearment that happily highlight the indent in a woman's hips, making it, in my eyes, public enemy number one. So be on the lookout for this rising star as it makes its claim to fame in the top 10 of Instagram's walk of shame as it quickly becomes the social media darling for us gals to further our future body insecurity and dysmorphia. If you or a loved one are suffering from this completely natural ailment that hits at the heart of our very vanity and affects pretty much all women everywhere, please call this number today. We can help. And I'd like to personally thank the good people on social media for facilitating this great obsession for perfection because, let's face it, we couldn't feel less beautiful without you. And an honorable mention for all search engines online everywhere that pop up with hundreds of results for tried and true solutions to get rid of those painful parts of ourselves that reflect our own feelings as women both in physical form and self-discipline. I mean, it's like we aren't even trying here because it's obvious we just don't have enough shitty feelings about this hideous beast we lovingly call our body without the laser-focused attention to everything that's wrong with it. Function, form, flexibility, strength, agility. All four-letter words in my opinion. And what's performance got to do, got to do with it? Absolutely nothing. That's what. Because who cares about aging strong when all we really need are a few less butt dimples? Am I right, ladies? Or wait, is it the other way around? I'm so easily confused these days. I am over 40 after all. Just ask anyone who's not a woman or even over 40. They're happy to fill you in on our rapid decline once we hit this ripe old age because the memory, she fades right along with our good looks. And how fortunate we are that people are always more than generous with their opinions and suggestions on subjects they know nothing about. I, for one, appreciate the honesty and conviction of those on the front lines of my life who think I could and should be doing it better. After all, what's a little unsolicited advice? Well, it's a diamond in the rough, that's what. Like asking or 
not even having to ask someone who's financially struggling, for instance, for pointers on investing. Wait, what should I do? OMG, yes, you just read my mind. I would love to put my financial future into your poverty mindset hands. You, my friend, are a genius. Wait, you're telling me you've never started an online business before, but have a list of reasons why it's most likely a terrible way to go. Duh, I'd absolutely love to hear more about your non-existent experience and why I could possibly be making the worst mistake of my life. Okay, so you're a guy who's never worn makeup a day in his life and has limited fashion sense from what I've seen, but would like to give me pro tips because you think I fall short of your expectations. Uh, yeah, where have you been all my life? I'm entirely in your hands, kind sir. And hold the phone. Just a minute. Health advice from someone who's always sick and, well, let's be honest, kind of looks like they're on death's door themselves. Yes, please. I eagerly await your non-professional opinion, doctor. Not a real doctor. Yeah, it's always a great strategy to ask people who have zero know-how or success in a particular area of life for their armchair expertise and then follow it to a T, almost as if it's gospel. Uh-oh. Oops, I did it again. Because here I go, here I go, here I go again, getting all confused. Scratch that, rewind tape. Let's try this again. Okay, we do, or at least I do, want to build a strong foundation as a means of prevention and endurance in my older years. And who am I kidding? I also want to look good while I'm doing it. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. And I prefer to be, as much as humanly possible, the expert of my own life with some support from the people around me who are the authority in their particular field and have an amount of success in that field. But unfortunately, common sense, it ain't so common when emotions, specifically my emotions, run high over a perceived negative thought about my body or life circumstance. And I'm very aware that I preach mindset throughout this podcast and the importance of changing your brain to change your mind and body. But it can also go in the opposite direction, like you're about to hear from Kelly McGonigal in her interview with Kevin Rose, where they talk all things movement, like changing the body to change and impact the brain. Yeah, it's a thing. Which makes sense, being that it's all connected, right? So if things can go from top down, why not bottom up? Many of the same chemicals in the brain are also in the muscles. So in working the body, you're inadvertently working your mind as well. I know, mind, body, blown. But, and this is a big but, sadly, not my butt, because, well, I have no butt. But in all honesty, how many times have you tried to start working out or eat healthy out of desperation and frustration over how you look and feel only to feel that same desperation and frustration over not sticking to it? Pain is a powerful motivator. But it's kind of hard to keep that motivation for long enough periods of time to sustain any real change. It only works for so long. So if we can't always stay consistent out of the pain to change, 
what's the other option? Could it possibly be social connection? Maybe playing to win rather than not to lose. Accountability to others or to yourself. A combination. Or possibly pain gets us, well, it gets me started, but something like love, self-compassion, whatever you want to call it, it keeps me going when I don't always want to. And possibly, most likely, there's no straight line. And the only constant is the inconsistency of life. It's ups, it's downs, it's all arounds. We have our good days, we have our bad, but it's how we perceive and react to those days that determine whether or not we stay stuck in them and for how long. Making the difference in whether we get back to the gym the next day or even the next year. Unfortunately, I have a lot of experience in that department. I used to feel that if I had a setback in my routine, which is inevitable, that I'd have to wait till the next Monday or even the first of the month to get back on it, rather than just recommitting to the next day. It took me forever, and when I say forever, I mean like recently, to realize that we don't always have to start at a beginning, beginning of the week, beginning of the month, beginning of the year, whatever the beginning means for you. We can just start from anywhere and at any time. There's no perfect time other than the one we choose. So how do we get off this Ferris wheel of our barely there workout routine? And I'm using the routine here loosely because I haven't had much of that lately or at all the last few years, actually. But one thing I do know now anyway is that I need to change things up or I'm going to get bored. And I don't know about you, but I get bored pretty quickly. My shiny object brain, she likes a little novelty. And for someone who also likes a daily schedule or plan, I don't always get a whole lot of novelty in my life. So mixing things up like in my workouts is one way to get that itch scratched, so to speak. But that's just me. What are some of the ways that you use to keep it going? Do you enjoy getting outside, working with a trainer, taking part in a group thing, doing your own thing or a combination? Are you someone who likes a little inner competition with the person next to you on the treadmill or your previous self when you had a personal best? Maybe it motivates you like it does me to have other people around you. So you push yourself harder on some days and go it alone on others. Or maybe you're more visually stimulated. I mean, motivated by all the hotties around you, providing a little extra pep in your otherwise painful Stairmaster step. Not saying I do, just that, you know, you could if you wanted to. And speaking of, you can even visualize yourself in the moment, how you want to look, feel. Is it strong, confident, good in your own skin? Because let's face it, everything we do is about how we want to feel once we get there. And if we're going to get there, we might as well do what we can to make it fun, make it interesting, and then make it work. Movement has always been for me the primary way that A, I protect my mental health and uh, B, that I connect with others. And I've taught dance and yoga and kind of traditional exercise formats for 20 years, but it hasn't really been my public face. I'm, I'm sort of more publicly known as a psychologist and a scientist. And uh, I decided that 
I finally wanted to break down the science of why movement is so important for mental health, Hmm. why it primes the biology of connection, like why moving your body is one of the best ways if you want strong relationships, if you want to feel like you belong. Movement is one of the best ways to access that sort of our natural capacity for that. So I wanted to make that like finally come forward and share that with the world. But it's been part of my life, you know, since I was a kid. So what have you learned in in terms of, you know, I think about what we hear in the press these days and you hear, of course, you know, exercise is good for you. Yes. And like it, it creates new neural connections and it helps the brain. And, you know, that's, it seems like, you know, Science Daily is publishing something new every single day on that. When you were diving into the science, like what did you figure out that's new and novel? Uh, that- yes, I will tell you. Okay. So I'm going to tell you two things that blew my mind that I think point to the least appreciated way that exercise changes the brain. So we should start with the most appreciated, which is the endorphin rush. And I hope we can talk about that because the The runner's high, the the science behind the runner's high is fascinating and it's not primarily endorphins, but let me start with a thing that literally when I, I learned this, it blew my mind. So you know how you have endocrine organs, like your adrenal glands, your pituitary gland, and they're releasing hormones and chemicals into your bloodstream that affect every system of your body, including your brain. So in the last 10 years, scientists have discovered that your muscles are basically an endocrine organ and that your muscles manufacture all sorts of proteins that only your muscles can manufacture and then release them into your bloodstream to affect your immune system, your cardiovascular system, and very much affect your brain. And the only time they're releasing these chemicals is when you contract your muscles through movement Hmm. and especially exercise. And one of the first scientific papers that wrote about these chemicals called them hope molecules. They're actually called myokines, which means um, produced by your muscles. And the idea is that when you contract your muscles through exercise, walking, running, swimming, hiking, dancing, whatever, your muscles are secreting these chemicals that go through your bloodstream, cross the blood-brain barrier, reach your brain, and they have these profound effects on mental health and, and brain health. So one of them, iricin, is a natural antidepressant. It increases motivation and mood in the short term. But in the long term, it also helps your brain recover from depression and recover from trauma. Um, and there are all sorts of these chemicals. That's just one. There are dozens and dozens where your muscles pump them out during movement. And it's like a pharmacy for your brain. And the only way you get them is through exercise. And so you can think of exercise as like an intravenous dose of hope. Hmm. And you produce these hope molecules and they reach your brain and they do these amazing things to make us more resilient to life. And like the, what was so fascinating to me about that is like who even knew your muscles were such a good friend to you. I mean, we know that muscles can help you lift heavy things or, you know, walk. But the idea that we as human beings could have evolved in a way where if we want healthy brains, if we want to be brave for life, if we want to recover from difficult life experiences, that our muscles know how to help our brains do that. Hmm. And movement is the way that that we become that version of ourselves who's more resilient. So that's one of them. And the other one is much easier to explain. Um, you know, lactic acid and everyone thinks lactic acid, you know, makes your muscles sore. Yeah. Which actually is, is not exactly right. But um, we do know that you produce lactic acid as a, a result of working hard, lifting weights, whatever. It now turns out that lactic acid works in that same way. It's a natural anti-anxiety and antidepressant. And so when you are feeling the burn in exercise, 
you are literally secreting out this metabolic byproduct of movement that is an anti-anxiety and wow. antidepressant. Like this, uh, to me, this is, it's, it's almost insane how much our brains rely on our muscles and on movement. So that's, I think that's a, a really different way of thinking about it. And particularly because these have such long-term effects that can really not just like rewire your brain, but change the whole structure of your brain. Yeah. If you think about in the days when we were going out and either being chased by something or hunting something, it's a pretty like pumped up state that you have to kind of get yourself into, right? And so that movement would help you calm down. This is the new idea behind the runner's high. So anthropologists now think the reason we get an exercise high is because, you know, 2 million years ago, human beings had to start working a lot harder to get their food sources because of the way that the environment changed. So they had to walk long distances, hike, run sometimes to chase down food, to forage, and that it required being willing to do hard work for sustained periods of time. And the idea is that somehow the humans who survived and the communities who survived were ones whose brains figured out you could hijack the reward system and other parts of the brain's sort of pleasure systems to make hard work and labor rewarding. Anthropologists and scientists have now discovered that when you do, when you work at the level of intensity that you would need to, to hunt or to forage, you get like the maximum runner's high, which is fueled by not only endorphins, but endocannabinoids, mm -hmm. which is like really interesting brain chemical that relieves pain so that you are willing to work harder, that um, gives you more energy but that has these two specific psychological effects that I think you can experience from any moderate intensity exercise. So endocannabinoids make you more optimistic. Hmm. They, they make you feel like, oh, if I keep hunting, I might find something. Hmm. Like good things are possible. It gives you this kind of perseverance. Um, endocannabinoids, by the way, that's, it's what cannabis mimics, right. but the psychological effect is a little different when it's produced naturally through movement. It's not like getting stoned. Um, although there's some similarities. So you feel more optimistic and you're feeling less pain, but endocannabinoids also make you more sensitive to the pleasures of social interaction. It's like a really specific effect. So it feels better to cooperate with others. You enjoy play more. You enjoy teamwork more. Um, other people's stories are more interesting. It feels better to laugh with others. Mm. And so when you exercise, and so here's the idea, the anthropological idea is that this state of neurochemistry not only makes you more willing to work hard and gather that food, but also feel better about sharing it afterward, which mm. is really how early humans survived. It wasn't, all right, we're all going to go out and look for the big kill. And then if I find it, I'm eating it all. And good luck to the rest of you. Right. And one anthropologist I talked with said that even more important than hunting and gathering was the sharing aspect. That's what allowed humans to become modern humans. And so it's kind of fascinating that somehow our, our brains adapted this exercise high that makes us able to do hard things and enjoy it and also makes us this more social version of ourselves so that when we come back and have to share uh, the rewards of what we collected, it feels good to feed your neighbor and to, to share the spoils literally. And uh, I think that that's one of the big benefits of exercise that is so underappreciated is that you know if you get a runner's high from whatever your activity is you're not only feeling good in the moment, but you're creating a, a brain state where you go back and you're a parent or you're a partner or you go back to work and you have to connect with other people. You're now in a brain state that makes you a sort of a more positively social version of mm -hmm. yourselves. 
And I think it's one of the reasons why exercise, regular exercise is so strongly linked to less loneliness and um, more positive relationships with others. What are the kind of minimum effective dose that we need to do to get some of these benefits? Like I, I do uh, twice a week, I do a high intensity interval training and I, I love the way, I mean, it's, it destroys you. Like I'm like laying on the ground, like out of breath. And I love that feeling. It's, it's, it's I don't know that I love that feeling. Okay. I will tell it's, you how to love that feeling in a moment, but okay. yes, go ahead. So, so you do that twice a week. Yeah. And I, you know, I feel great. I, honestly though, we got to talk about cold therapy and showers and stuff like that, that I also do, which are cold showers, which I just did like 20 minutes ago. So that's a good um, stress. It's a, it's a fantastic feeling like this, these ice baths and the Wim Hof method. I'm sure you've heard of Wim Hof. He does these. Oh, you oh yes. Okay. Yeah. He's like the ice man. He does the, crazy submerge himself up to his neck in ice water um but i'm curious like if if someone is sitting there a lot of geeks listen to my podcast like somebody's sitting there and saying i don't do a lot of exercise but i want to feel some of these benefits well i I take it back because you know your book says the joy of movement there should be joy involved in this versus it looking at it like clinically saying like well if i only do you know this high intensity interval training twice a week i'll I'll feel fine like see i feel like there's a lot of good news here so i love that you asked the question because i actually have some data to give answers and i think there's nothing wrong with trying to be strategic about this but i love that you also mentioned so i don't actually view exercise as something that you have to exploit in order to get the benefits. I think that the direct experience itself can also be enjoyable and meaningful. So you're right in that. I don't want to overemphasize the idea that like, oh, exercise is just one more thing. I have to get perfect in order to get the result I want. It's really, you have to hold that those opposites because you can make strategic decisions so that you are doing the type of movement form that's most likely to say, help relieve depression or make your brain more resilient. Like you, you can work with that. And also at the same time, there is no reason not to look for the form of movement that while you're doing it, you feel incredible. Or if not during, then afterwards, like in that moment when you're on the floor and your heart is pounding and you're out of breath, I actually had an amazing experience of that. So I also, I love um, high intensity interval training in the sense that when I first discovered it a few years ago, I'd never pushed myself that hard. I could like not do it at all. I started the, uh, Les Mills has a program called Grit and it's like 30 minutes of just hit all, all in, all out. And I couldn't get through any of these movements. And I hear I was a, like a, an exercise professional. And uh, so it was novel and it was interesting. And a couple years after I started, I found myself lying on the floor of my workout room and my heart was pounding in like that way that it does when you're recovering. Yeah. And my rib cage was literally heaving. I felt like the universe was delivering CPR to me. I didn't even need to try to breathe. I was being breathed and I, and I was, you know, sweating. And I remember thinking I've never felt my heart pound this hard, except in moments of fear, mm. of total panic. And I was lying there and I felt so alive and I thought like, this is what courage feels like. And because, you know, my work on stress and so much of my work in psychology is about being able to reframe things so that you can have a different relationship to often inner experiences you don't want to have like fear or pain or uh, stress. And I just felt in that moment how much movement can teach us. And literally the next time I was in an experience where I felt my heart pound from fear, I was able to say to myself, 
you know what, this is also what courage feels like. And you have access to your heart right now and your courage. So that's when I said, I love that feeling like, mm-hmm. you know, that's what I meant, but it's okay. Let's get back to trying to maximize the benefits. So here's the good news. If all you want is to feel better, you want to, you know, have a better mood, more energy and be a slightly better version of yourself. There is no minimum dose and no sort of objective physical thing you need to be able to do. So the, in the research, the shortest dose I could find was three minutes of light activity, like standing up, doing a few stretches, moving your spine around. It could be the equivalent of going for a walk. I've seen some studies that look at walking up and down staircases in an office building, which seems like it would be really unpleasant, but as little as three minutes reliably gives people more energy and puts them in a better mood. So if all you want is that, like if you're like, hey, exercise is going to make me happier and make me feel, you know, more enthusiastic about life, you could literally do three minutes when you need it and you will start to get some of these benefits. Do you have to know that that's what your your outcome, that's what you want your outcome to be? Mm -mm. You're saying if I just clean my house for 15 minutes, I'm going to get that benefit I'm wondering, is it like also the mental recognition that I'm... So it's interesting. I actually asked a lot of people who study this. It's called the feel better effect. And I asked yeah. a lot of the researchers who've documented it, like, what do you think explains it? And I basically got two different explanations and they didn't all give both of them, but many of them actually gave both of them. One, it's pure biochemistry. So when you are in an inactive state, so many things change about your your biochemistry that are not conducive to feeling good. You know, if you think about what mood is, psychologists map mood into two dimensions, how much energy you have and how positive versus negative you feel. And the latest um, neuroscience and emotion research suggests that your sort of, you know, just free floating mood state is largely determined by how physically active your body is, that your brain is listening to all of these signals from your body about posture and movement and heart rate and breathing. And when you do not move your body for long periods of time, your mood state naturally settles for most people into less positive and less energy. Hmm. And so as soon as you move your body, like the most reliable effect is you, you change your biochemistry in a way in your brain and in the rest of your body that gives you more energy and makes you feel more hopeful, happy, optimistic because moving your body is basically like your brain interprets it as we're living life, we're doing something, we're moving forward. And you literally have adrenaline, a little bit of adrenaline rush from any sort of activity, a little bit more dopamine in your brain, not at the crazy levels that are going to, you know, that people are often scared of these days, but like a nice, nice little extra flow of dopamine that just makes you feel more motivated. So that's the small dose. And you don't have to know that you're chasing that. So the other thing that the researchers told me is the achievement sensation. That's what she called it. The idea that we associate all forms of movement with basically doing something useful or good for ourselves or productive, making progress. I mean, we literally movement, we feel movement as making progress or taking action and that feels good. So whether you're interpreting it as I cleaned my house and I feel good about that, or I exercised, and I feel good about that. If you found their discussion to be a breath of fresh air in the otherwise overly saturated conversations on movement and exercise, check out the full episode of today's clip, How Exercise Helps Us Find Happiness, Hope, 
courage, and connection with Kelly McGonigal and Kevin Rose on The Kevin Rose Show. Links to that and both their social media are in the show notes below. And check out my newsletter to get a sneak peek into more of my own journey on how I'm fumbling my way through my 40s and beyond. And as always, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and share with someone you think might benefit. And until next time, thanks for listening.